Hey, I just want to shout out to all the dads here. Have a wonderful Father's Day. Some of you are here for the first time. I just want to welcome you. Big welcome to each of you. And I want to just give a shout out to a stepfather who's here with a mother and a younger brother. I'm not going to embarrass you, but it made my day to see you this morning. So I get to talk about Father's Day. You know, first of all, I think John is really nervous about that dunk tank because he asked like 12 questions at staff meeting like, well, is it deeper than I am? And, you think, and I'm like, yeah, you're going to go into a washing machine with these. And I know I'm going to be there too. I hope John's there a little longer, but uh, take your free shots next Sunday, of course. Talking about dads, I was thinking about this. Um, I don't know about you, but I like old movies or new movies and screen dads. Screen dads, they come like in all sizes or good ones and not so good ones. And so I started doing some research on that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, who do you think the number one recorded good screen dad is? Yeah, that was really good. But it's Andy of Mayberry, if you know that. Sheriff Taylor, honorable mention to Pa on the Little House on the Prairie. Atticus Finch, but that other call is there too. The number one recorded millennial bad screen dad is Darth Vader. <laughs> you know, we have got to be so glad that our dads were not Darth Vader. I mean, number one, having your dad dressed up like this every day, back to school night, and here this guy comes in, you know, he's all in some strange thing. (sighs) He's making weird noises. That's not going to impress your teachers. And and what does he do? He announces that, Luke, I am your father. And what's the first fatherly thing he does? He cuts off his son's arm with a lightsaber. You know, we didn't have dads like that. One dad that really confused me completely, again, is a millennial thing, best dad, worst dad, made the same list. Homer Simpson. How can he be on the best dad list and the worst dad list? That doesn't make any sense to me. Dad stuff gets confusing. I saw a survey that said dads, now dads are the ones reporting this, 52% of dads asked at a supermarket declared that they were the primary food provider of the family. I'm like, I'm not sure that's realistic. You know, for me, I go to the store, Janine, don't listen to this, I go to the store because I can get stuff that maybe she knows isn't healthy for me. Like, you know, I go to the store, it's the snack shelves, it's the potato chip stuff, it's the Rick Cray, it's the four food groups that are bad, you know, the bacon. But, you know, Janine keeps me really, really healthy. So I don't know how that 52% came out, but there's a lot of stuff out there about dads. We all had dads, didn't we? We may not all be a dad, but we all kind of had dads. And maybe you can pick a screen dad that was like your dad. I hope it wasn't Darth Vader. You know, but it could be like the guy from Christmas Story, you know, with the furnace or, or, or somebody else. You know, that guy, uh, Wat, you know, Watkins, and he's always kind of creepy on all the dad things he presents. Catch me if you can. There are like some bad screen dads, some good screen dads. But, you know, if you're here and you're a dad or you're a stepdad or you had a dad, or you're trying to figure out dad in your life, that can be a lifetime process. Who was my dad? What was he like? Well, I had a dad, and he's, he's home. He actually became a Christ follower at the end of, the, of his life. 
But it really helped me to understand my dad. Here's probably a picture of me with him. He's grabbed me and we're down at the beach. I love the beach. It's probably because of this. My dad was, I, I'd only have to describe him as a fun dad and a creative dad. Maybe not the North Star dad, definitely not the entrepreneurial dad. He taught me to love all people. I really appreciate that, not to look down on people. I love that so much. He told me about the importance of education. But he didn't like to help you make any kind of decision. So I was out there kind of on my own. He, he was an introvert. He put the in and the intro to introvert himself. And, you know, that was just my dad. Six years old, he and my mom just couldn't put it together. And he went off. I still was in relationship with him. But, you know, I, I, he, my, my dad married my stepmom, Johanna. She's still in my life, 80 years old now. And my stepdad, a guy named Jack, was just an awesome guy and just taught me stuff. that my, I kind of had a good world with that. So, you know, you can have an impact wherever you are, stepdad, dad, having a dad. But for some of us, we have to sort of think through sometimes this father pain thing. Yeah? And it, it, it's like... How do you get through that? How do you walk through some of those things? Sometimes it, it takes a while. You know, my dad wasn't Darth Vader. My dad was a nice guy. He's a fun guy, creative guy. But it really helped me later in life to understand something about my dad so you can understand me a little bit. Uh, I'm not like that. Uh, but my dad, my dad was, he, he really wanted a, a career in music. And he was, that movie, 20 Feet from Stardom. He wasn't necessarily going to be a star, but he was headed in 1941 to something that's kind of nerdy now for, for us now, but he was headed to the symphony. And he was, in 1941, up at Tanglewood with the Boston Symphony. And so Lenny Bernstein was in his class, and people like Aaron Copeland and stuff like that were teachers. But 1941 was the war, and it took him out. And that was the end of the clarinet. And that was the end of symphony. He just came back, and he couldn't play as a professional. And so my dad was a guy who sat in an office all of his life with tremendous grief because what he really wanted to do, he couldn't do. And what he didn't want to do, being an attorney, he had to do. And so when I began to understand that about my dad, it really helped me to put things in perspective. So, so I don't know your dads, but there's probably a story. There's probably grief. Did you know I, I was reading and, and hearing on NPR, and, and they had a powerful program about two months ago about child rearing. Did you know, and this is true, you know, if we had parents and grandparents and great parents, great parents, which we all did, that in 1900 to 1940, it seems like ancient history, the prevailing psychological thought on raising children was this. Don't tell them that you love them. Don't pick them up. In fact, and I'm not exaggerating, for the first 24 hours of a newborn's life, Leave that newborn alone by itself. Don't feed it. Don't coddle it. Don't pick it up. Leave it. That's what's going to make that young boy or young girl awesome. This is what they were saying. One of the proponents at that time said, look, the worst thing you could do is overkiss your child. And I was like, well, what does it mean? What is overkissing? Twice a year. <laughs> Don't pick your child up. Don't hold them because you're going to make them weak. So our great-grandparents or great-great who fought the first war and all of that stuff, this was the prevailing stuff all over growing children up in America. 
So out of your grandparents and out of your parents and, and all of this comes this whole thing where society's trying to figure out how to raise us all. World War II ended that whole discussion. Came back and in 1965, it was determined that fathers spent three times more time with their children than in the past 150 years. So we're living, making progress. But we all had dads. And on this day, we can still honor them, the things that they gave us and the challenges as we keep growing. The thing about it is I got to know about being a dad. It's not like... I can't go to a screen dad and say, you know, today I want to be Atticus and tomorrow I want to be Sheriff Andy. You know, this day I want to be this because there's no screen dad that I can become. I can only be myself. You can only be yourself. Some of you aren't even dads. There's a, a powerful verse that really changed my whole look at this that, that's in this, this book, this book called Luke. Luke was, you know, one of the writers about Jesus. And, and this guy showed up. This guy showed up, and you know him. He wore weird clothes. He ate weird food, locusts and honey. I like the honey. I don't like the locust thing. And, and, you know, he just appeared in the desert. And, like, what's appearing in the desert? But everybody was going out to see him. And I looked at this again, and I saw something I'd never seen in my life. You know, if, if, you, if you heard this thing called Godspell years ago, you hear this song, prepare, the, prepare Ye the Way of the Lord. It's a nice song, but that's not the whole piece of it. In fact, up here you'll see it. This is, the, this is the word that gave John the Baptist his thing of what he was supposed to be doing. Look, there's something in here I never saw before. And he, meaning John, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's a whole different topic. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's the top shelf. That's the top shelf. It's not to get us all going to the synagogue every day. It's not to do this, not do that. It's just to do a big turn, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Again, in the disobedient wisdom to the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. But word order in the original language is really actually important. And so of those three things, even though we don't hear it, the first thing is this. He came to say, hey, dads, and, and, and moms too, because the word is, is, is potter, but back then it may be like today we're going through this thing of, of making things a little bit more distinguishable. But for dads, it's very, very real. So it's true for everybody, but it's really true for dads. You know, turn in our hearts to the children. In, the, in this original language, it actually doesn't say you have to be a father to do it. It just says fathers, to turn the heart of fathers, to turn the heart of anybody who's maybe older and have an impact on the next generation, to turn that heart, this thing, the center of my will, to turn this center of my will thing to like go to the next generation and say, hey, I'm here for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I really like that. It kind of tells me about God, the Father. He loves kids, and he loves you. And he loves me. And you could be an older kid and a younger kid. He loves you. And so all of us, even as a, a faith community, turn in our hearts to the next generation. That's why we do kid stuff, and it's right at the basis of here. And so when I think of my own journey with my dad, uh, we, we've got to carve it out, each of us, individually. 
you know, I can't be a screen dad. You can't either. It doesn't work. It's not Hollywood. It's real. And what I like about what, what John the Baptist said, he said this. He said it's to turn, to turn, to turn the heart of the fathers to their children. And what I like about that is, I don't know about you, but driving around New Jersey, there are a lot of turns. And there's potholes. And sometimes you've got to turn around the potholes. But turning is really a process. I go into a turn. I'm in the middle of a turn. I exit that turn. When I was 18 years of age, don't anybody do this in the church. I was a stupid 18-year-old. And as a stupid 18-year-old, believe it or not, I had hair down to my shoulders. And, and I had a bike, a Ducati. It was like a 350. And I just got it. And we're taking it down the road. And I had two bikes behind me. No helmet. No license. <laughs> not even a car license. <laughs> and a very rudimentary idea of how you shift and downshift bikes. And so we're out there in a place called Chad's Ferry where I'm flying around at about 4 o'clock, no cars on the road, beautiful temperature. It almost sucked me in for all my life. And, I, and I'm moving at probably at 50 miles an hour and suddenly there is the worst curve I ever saw right in front of me. And I didn't know if I had time to downshift or if I did it wrong, would I be in a tree? And all of a sudden, I remembered what one of the guys said. Lean into the turn. And I leaned into the turn. And as I leaned into the turn, the bike took me right through it. And I realized that in parenting as a dad, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what yesterday looked like, it's a new day. And we can turn leaning in and finding that what God prepares us to do, we're going to get through it. Leaning into the turn is what it's all about. Here's some shots of leaning in. You can see it. Whether you're on a bike or you're flying around or whatever it is in our life, leaning into the turn is so key. You can be surfing like my son-in-law. It's leaning into it. You can be landing a plane in Hong Kong. You better lean into it. You can be riding in the French you know, Tour de France, you better be leaning into it. Leaning into it's how you get through it. So today we may be saying to ourselves, well, how can I be a dad that's more like this, more like that? How do I love my kids and all of this? It, it's leaning in. Just lean in. No matter where you've been, lean in. Your kids need you. Whether you're 69, whether you're 90, you're not too much of a dad at 19. So I'll say 69, or maybe you are a dad at 19, wherever you are, your stepdad, your grandpa, whatever it is, kids still look at you as really the foundation of so much of life. And so we can all start in and begin to lean. You know, I wanted to step back, and now that I'm kind of in my real early 60s, Believe it or not, my wife is a lot younger, of course. But in my, my early 60s, I, I, real, I realized this. There's things I know now that I didn't know when I was 30. And so what would be kind of like my, my top 10 real quick list of things that, about being a dad that I know now that, that maybe I could pass on and, 
and share a bit with you. So it's my journey coming from a dad that still trying to figure him out and realizing he was like the guy 20 feet from a music career that missed it and he grieved and he, he didn't know how to become a Christ follower at that time. So, so here's my top 10. And my first one, of course, is going to be this. Go lean into it. If you're a stepdad, lean into it. If you're a grandpa, lean into it. If you're just a dad, you're working with kids in the church, lean into it. Doesn't matter what happened last month. You can have a dad, well, Darth, Darth Vader leaned into it. At the end, he actually became a half-decent a guy, right? He took that thing off, and you see his little eyes, and a little creepy, but, but, you know, you see he's hanging out with the good guys at the end. So somewhere, he leaned into it. And, and so leaning into it's a thing to do. It's not an on and off switch. Wherever you've been, you lean. You don't go through the whole turn at one point. You can start the turn and then let the bike do the work as you make that turn. And you go, wow, that just seriously works. And so it didn't matter. You know what I found out? My family since 1810, dads and moms just left each other. 1810. Back in the old country. We're the first family and I had no doubt that was good we were going to stay for the long haul Janine and I but none of them were believe they just didn't know what's you know well look at that that's not a really good track record is it but I knew all I had to do was lean in and that that bike or that relationship with God he's gonna it's gonna take me so lean in don't worry where you've been just take a start number two how they need us changes and that keeps you on your toes. But my adult daughters now, our adult daughters, need us in a different way than when they were little kids. You know, when they were little kids, they got a little, you know, they have so much faith. They, get a, they have a little splinter in their finger. And they, they say, Mommy, Dad, Dad, can we, you call, can we pray about this? Boom, it's right there. You know, and, 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 and they need us for all these little things. But they can't be doing that at 15. They can ask you for prayer but they're probably not going to show you every little splinter in their fingers. What they need changes, and they're in the process of growing, and they, they need some level of independence, which isn't fun because we sometimes like them more at three and four. Suddenly they're 14, and they're getting driver's licenses and things like that in a couple years. They need us. We need to change, and we need to adapt. Uh, when, my, when one of our daughters was like five, she decided to take a pencil out and just drew Mary Poppins vignettes all over the wall in one room. Well, that, that took some issues. And, you know, I went to her and I said, I won't mention who she is. I said, you know, who did this? She goes, I don't know. And I go, I'm like, do you think mom did it? No, no. Do, do, do you think, did I do it? No. Did, I think she's actually four. And did, did the cat do it? No. Daddy, I did it. And I'm like, okay. And I realized we got a budding artist on our hands, you know? But then when she's 14 or 15 and she's like, you know, being a little squirrely at times, it's like, how do you deal with that? I can't do the same thing. And, you know, timeout didn't work for her at all. Timeout. I mean, like, she's like, hey, I can do it. And so I said, okay, let, let's deal with this, Lizzie. And, and I, I don't know about you, but I had a, we had a great blessing in our life. Our kids always only wore vintage clothes. So every fall when school shopping came up, hey, Dad, can I have some money for clothes? I go, yeah, how much do you need? $20. You got it, girl. And with that $20, she could come back with 10 pairs of shoes. Well, her closet was this high. I'm not, 
am I jesting? This high, right across the top, deep and wide with, with, with shoes. So I said, you know, blah, 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 you know, one of my daughters says, I'll tell you what, when you, when you mess up a little, I'll tell you what, I get to go into your closet and I get to pick out one pair of shoes and hold them captive for 30 days. Oh, Dad, that's not going to bother me at all. So she did something a little squirrely. I got the joy going to that closet where I had probably 50 pairs of shoes, picking out two and wondering if I captured the good ones. Oh, that doesn't bother me, Dad. It wasn't until she was an adult. We're having dinner in somewhere, and all of a sudden she says, you know, Dad, remember that thing you used to do? I go, yeah. She goes, that got to my heart. She goes, <laughs> she goes you could have timed me out. I would have made it through. I don't care if I was in solitary confinement, I'd make it through. But when you went after my shoes, and you knew somehow what shoes it was, well, the needs changed as they grow, and so that happens with us too. Number three, tell me that life is hard, but tell me to cherish it. Tell me life's hard. It is hard. Is it not hard? But tell me to cherish it. The chances of being born, I know a doctor who's a friend of our family's, and, and he's a fertility doctor, and very, very good, and he basically said, I said to him, I'll just call him Paul. I said, Paul, tell me. I said, what's the chances of being born? He said, well, it approaches absolute zero if you're here as a mathematician. You just do the math on it. Take it back six generations. The chances of you being here naturally approaches absolute zero. But you're here. And God says, I knew you before the foundation of the world. Life is precious. It's hard. But teach me, Dad. Teach me, parent, how to cherish it. Number four, grades aren't always a reflection of success in life. You know, I think we, I used to get these things called progress reports, you know, addressed to me from the school. And I, I, I fell for this every semester. I thought I was going to get a note that talked about progress. Instead, I open it and I find out which of my kids are having Ds and Fs. And it's like, a, it should have been called a lack of progress report, you know? And it was always the same one, which I'm not going to mention. And it was like, I felt like the, wait, wait, my, the, 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 my view of who I am as a dad is based on their GPA. No, it's not. Well, their GPA in any given year is going to be what determines their future success. No, it's not. You know the data. Some of the biggest tech companies in America are run by college dropouts. This college is just so boring for them. So GPA is not the determiner. There's so much pressure on our kids right now. Some of you know it. If you're wherever grade you're in, if you're middle school, you're, there's tremendous amounts of pressure. And so if we can take some of that off and go some, from different directions. I, I had a guy, we had a, this is going to kill the teachers, I'm sorry. As John always says, don't send me emails um, because I already know it's probably not good. But we had, we had a guy, an artist guy, and he was an old guy. And, and when we were just young, like 30 years old, he said this, Dave, your kids don't have to go to school every day. Now, there should be some uproarious celebration in the room because of that. But I go, what do you mean? He said, take your kids out once or twice a year and do this. Wake them up in the morning, ask them if they have a test or something pertinent. And if they don't, say, guess what? 
you get to do whatever you want to do today, and I'll drive you wherever it is. Kind of scary, but it's time together. So, of course, kids are going to love that. So one of my daughters goes, okay, I want to go to the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, three and a half hours away. Okay, three and a half hours back. Andy Warhol Museum, interesting place. And uh, so we got in the car, and we went there down in Pittsburgh, got lost, met Andy Warhol's nephew in the process, which is a different story. But so we get in this place, and he had it. There's an exhibition of all of his pictures of something, cats or something, from the 1950s. And, and this one of my daughters comes out and goes, hey, he couldn't draw. And I went, yeah, I think you're right. In their early adult years, my daughter said to me, Dad, do you know the day that changed my life? Epic. I want you to think about epic as guys, all right? Your epic moments. And I said, no, what was it? They said, it's when you took me to that museum, Andy Warhol Museum. I said, that was it? <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and, and she goes, it was that day I realized that Andy Warhol could not draw, and I couldn't either. But I could succeed in art. I could become a designer. I could become a full artist. And I'm like, wow, you didn't even tell me back then that that was the epic moment. You see, guys, there are going to be epic moments in our parenting or our step-parenting. I call that out to a step-parent here. There are epic moments that you can't prepare for. You don't even know when they're happening, but suddenly they happen. And they may look back and say, this was the thing that changed me so much. Okay, the next one, number five, some things are only learned by failure. I had a relative of mine who said, you know, Dave, this was a couple years ago. He said, Dave, my concern for you is I don't think you're going to have enough failures in life to really get good. Like, what do you mean failures? We don't want to fail. I don't want my kids to fail. I don't want to fail. But reality is entrepreneurs know you got to fail a couple times to really get good. And we don't like it when our kids fail, do we? They get a D in history. They have to repeat something, go to summer school. I was a pro in summer school. I did a lot of summer school, I'll just tell you that. I wasn't really a good student beginning, but it got better. And, and so what you find out, that failure has an interesting way of changing us and pushing us forward. Some things are learned by failure. Number six, be who you are. Don't try to piece together a TV, gad, TV dad. I'm not going to be Atticus Finch. I'm not going to be Andy Mayberry. I'm not a sheriff. You know, I don't have Barney with me. It's like, I, you know, that's not going to work. But you know who I am? I can only be who I am. My dad was incredibly introverting. If you showed up on his property, he found a great way to send you the other way. He was nice about it, polite about it, but he just didn't want to be with a lot of people. That's who he was. He wasn't going to be anything different than that. But he still was my dad, and I still loved him. And you know, each of us come out differently. Some of us like to play ball. Some of us like to ride bikes. Some of us like to fish. Some of us like to study. Some of us like to do whatever we like to do. You know something? Be who you are, but, but just turn. Lean into the turn and involve the kids. You know, because I, I, here's something I know now that I didn't know back then. I hate to say this, but your office, after a few years when you retire, they're going to forget your name. 
That's a hard thing. But they tell us that everything we do in our life needs to be geared to make that place awesome. And they'll take every hour of our day and we think we're doing the right thing, which maybe we are. But we think that somehow that'll translate to time with the kids. You say, the kids will understand. Well, maybe I don't have a lot of time. But what I do with the time, I, I know a guy who doesn't have time. He, he's a major national figure, uh, just in sports stuff, sports management. Has an office in L.A. and an office in New York. Talk about commuting. Both of those are active offices through the week. But I noticed something, that every time he comes back, he takes one of his sons or daughters for private lunch or breakfast. He's kind of like an incredible dad with no time. And so my encouragement is just whatever you can do, lean into it. Don't be a TV dad. Just be yourself. That's who they want. They want who you are. Number seven, tell me that I'm loved by my parents and I'm loved by God. We live in such a harsh world. Some of you are a little older. I, I still remember the love generation. I remember what the 60s were like. They were way off, but they remember they had that great revival that came of it. God used and brought all these people to himself back then. I was part of that whole scene. But right now, like, this, this is a harsh world, and it can take and rip your soul. It can rip it apart. It can rip it apart. It can rip our students apart. That's why we're not going to listen to what they said between 1900 and 1940 because in reality what we need to do is tell our kids we love them. Flow out of it. Let them know that God loves them because life is hard. Number eight, let parenting flow out of the relationship of love between you and your spouse because they need to see that love. A lot of times what we do is when we start parenting, we forget about the other person and we just focus totally on the kids. Kids love that. And they know how to divide us if they can do it. But let them know that they love, that you love their mom or love their dad or the stepdad is loved or the stepmom is loved. If you work with kids, just let them know they're loved because it's a harsh world. Number nine, apologizing to the kids doesn't make the kids think that you're weak. We don't like to show our weaknesses. And sometimes we think if we blow it, we just blow it and they're going to forget about it. But you know, when you go apologizing, what, what this whole Jesus follower things is, said there's incredible power in that. Because when we're weak, we're strong. Number 10, train up a child in the way that they should go. I've got some Amish friends out, out in where we used to live and one, one family we used to work with in particular, John and uh, John was, a, John was a carpenter kind of guy, you know, and he, just a Jesus follower, like 10 or 12 kids or something. And um, we asked him to, to fix a fence, to make a fence in our backyard. And he did. And, and so he's there. And, and who's with him? This little person. It's like a little four-year-old. And it's like, who's this, John? Is, well, this is my son, number nine or something. And, and it's like, okay. And he had a hammer in his hand, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. And, and so John brought his son to do what he does on a morning, spending time. You know what that little kid did? He picked up nails, and he's like whacking them into, the, into where the fence goes. You know the crazy thing? He was right. And another crazy thing is he actually got the nails after like 30 whacks into it. And I said, John, why did he do it? He goes, well, I'm trying to figure out the way he needs to go. 
in the Amish, they don't have a lot of commodity traders and, and, and psychologists and all that other stuff. You got about eight things you can do. And, and one of them is being a carpenter working with wood. And he knew at four and five, that's the way he should go. He didn't try to make him a sports star. He made him who he was. And so we may want our kids to follow us, being this, that, and the other thing, but look and see what do they, what are they being called to do by God? So let me, let me, let me close in here with, with this. You never know when epic moments happen. I want to tell you about a lady, as I close, that had the most profound spiritual mom influence on my life. And at the end of that story, you're going to hear what the impact of a dad did to create that. Dr. Thelma Price was the assistant vice president for what was called back in the 60s, 70s, minority affairs. She was a force in state college for four decades, loved by the faculty, by students, and everybody called her mom. I was a, I was a design student there, and I was like a, a freshman before I came to faith, and this, this girl in, in, in my class said, hey, let's go up, and, and I want to introduce you to mom. Like, whose mom? Well, my mom. So we went up, and it obviously wasn't her mom, and she goes, this, everybody calls Dr. Price mom. I said, hi, mom. She, and it was like the first, listen, it was the first Christ follower I ever met, my first one. And uh, I could sense like this fragrance on her, the goodness. And that was it. Speed the clock four decades later, Janine and I now have follower of Christ, get back to State College and pastoring the church, and I run into mom with Janine. And I was so excited to introduce Janine to mom. And so I went, I said, mom, you know, Dr. Price, uh, I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I was an 18-year-old punky little kid at Penn State, and uh, I met you. And, and you were the first, what I know now, Christ follower as a woman that I had ever seen. That's part of my journey. And she looked at me and she goes, I remember you. She goes, but you came to that office with a different girl than this one standing here in front of me. <laughs> and I said, yes, Dr. Price, I did because I came to faith a year later and uh, I want you to meet the greatest gal. that ever. I only dated one Christian girl. It was Janine Jansen, Janine for Jansen. That's all I needed. And I was so happy. I, I got to know mom as a pastor because every pastor in that town knew mom. Because everybody knew mom. Because mom knew everybody. When I was in line at a, at a Walmart, just give me a few minutes, I was lying at a Walmart and, and she's behind me. Or, um, we're having breakfast, a couple of coaching people. There's this young couple behind them. She just turned around as a grandmother. She goes, now you two love each other. You love each other all your lives, will you? If you're going to get married, you just have to love each other and bless them. Turned around, we had breakfast. This is the kind of person. Penn State said this. Nicknamed mom, Dr. Price often found book money, food, housing, clothes for needy students. Out of her pocket. She also located untapped resources for student programming, such as the Black Arts Festival, frequently used her business connections to help students obtain internships, full-time employment, actively mentored staff and faculty members. I think she was probably the biggest force at Penn State in four, decorate, four decades in the academic world. She's a great lady. And uh, 
you know, I got, a, I got a little stone in my pocket that she gave me when I got to State College, and I, I carry that many times in my pocket. Her pastor came to me, and he goes, do you, do you know what happened? Do you know, and this is my clothes, you know what happened to her? I go, no. Do you know why Thelma Price, do you know why mom is mom? I go, no. I go, she had a dad. I go, what do you mean? He goes, she had a dad. He goes, in western Pennsylvania, not an easy place to hang out, especially for an African-American family. But he had a grocery store down on Main Street in this town. This pastor telling me this story that unlocks mom. She was an 11-year-old girl. Epic moment, guys. You never know when they're going to happen. You can't plan for them, and you can't even determine how safe or unsafe they are. So 4.45 in the afternoon, as the store was closing, a man walks into their store, pulls out a gun, sticks it in his stomach of the dad with an 11-year-old girl looking by and says, give me all the money in that cash register or I'm going to kill you. How'd you like to have that happen with your 11-year-old just standing with you? And he looked. And he didn't take his eyes off the cash register and said, son, put the gun down. Sir, you don't know I'm going to kill you right now. I'm going to blow you away and your daughter's going to see this. And I'm not kidding. Son, without touching his eyes off, counting the cash register, put the gun down. No, you don't understand. I'm pulling it. I'm pulling it now. Son, put the gun down. How much money do you need? I need $100. You put that gun down. I'm going to give you $100 right now. Not as a reward, but I know you're a man who needs something. He put the gun down, took $100 from the drawer, gave it over to this man, and then he turned and looked at him and he said this, and when you need money again, you come right to me and I will give you as much as you need. The man ran out and only one other time he came back. He said, I need $100 again. And out of that cash register, no questions asked, gave that man $100. It's said of that man that he put the gun down and he never picked it up again. And he was a citizen in that community in good standing the rest of his life. An epic moment from a man influencing his 11-year-old daughter who went on as a Christ follower and did likewise. So fathers, you never know those epic moments, but they come, and I know you'll be there for it. 